0: Transforming aspiration in our lives comes from the realization that we're not practicing for ourselves alone. This realization, or this aspiration, is called Bodhijita. <clears throat> Literally, it's the Pali word. It means "heart, heart mind of awakening, heart mind of liberation. And it's expressed in the motivation that we can nurture and cultivate. It's expressed in the motivation that we practice and we live our lives for the benefit, for the welfare, for the happiness of all beings. As we get a glimpse of the possibility of this, even in the form of an aspiration to have bodhicitta or to cultivate it. It works a wonderful transformation in our lives. But I'd like to consider tonight uh, two questions. First, how we can more fully understand <coughs> what it means, this practice of bodhicitta that we're living for the benefit of all beings. And the second question is, how can we accomplish it? How can we actually do it? So what does it mean to say that our practice is for the benefit of all? It's not immediately obvious. You know, we're sitting here (coughs) watching our breath, listening to sounds, creeping along slowly. (laughs) How does that benefit anybody else? That's a reasonable question. It happens in two ways. It happens first because the more we understand our own minds, our own hearts, the more we understand everybody else. One of the most amazing things in practice is that we begin to see that although our individual stories are quite different, we have different backgrounds, and upbringing, and education, and whatever, But underneath the individual stories, the nature of phenomena is the same. When we're sitting with a pain in our knee, it doesn't matter whether we're sitting in Bari or in Burma or it's a Tibetan or a Chinese or whatever. The experience of pain is the same. When we understand the nature of anger, the nature of fear, the nature of love or compassion, It is the same in all of our minds, in all of our hearts. The more deeply we understand ourselves, the more deeply we understand everybody else. And the realization (coughs) of this commonality of experience gives rise to a great compassion for the suffering of others because we understand the suffering in ourselves. We understand very intimately the potential for freedom in everyone else because we see it so clearly in ourselves. The beauty of a retreat, the experience of being on retreat, is that in the solitude of silence, we feel increasingly connected. And I think that all of you, those of you who have been on retreat before know this, those of you for whom this is the first time, it's quite a surprise, at the end of the retreat, the feeling of connection, the feeling of bondedness from this mutual undertaking. As we understand ourselves better, we understand everybody else better. The second way in which our practice directly benefits all others has to do with the transformation of how we are in the world. And it's obvious, if we're more loving and more peaceful and less judgmental and less selfish, what happens? The world is that much more loving and more peaceful, and the world is that much less selfish and less judgmental. There is no way that how we are cannot affect everyone around us. Now, it's Just as an image to consider, it's like being in a small boat in the middle of a storm. And everybody's life is in danger. If there is one wise, calm person on that boat, That person has the capacity to actually bring everyone to safety. The world is like this boat. Can we be that person who is wise, who is calm, who is understanding, who is compassionate? There's one story, a very dramatic story, which has always inspired me tremendously. A story about Gandhi in the time of the Indian, part, Indian freedom from Britain, uh, when India and Pakistan were partitioned. And for those of you who are familiar with that historically, it was a time of tremendous bloodshed. I mean, the Hindus and Muslims were, as they were moving to the respective uh, areas, tremendous violence. tens of thousands of people were killed. And, and the army went into the Punjab, which is in the western, the western part of the country. They sent 10,000 troops to try to uh, subdue the violence. And Gandhi himself went to Calcutta, to Bengal. And Gandhi declared that he was going to undertake a fast, even until death, unless people put down their arms, put down their weapons. And the force of his moral integrity His moral stature was so great that what one person, what 10,000 people could not do in the Punjab, through force, one person could do in Bengal, how we are in the world inevitably has tremendous consequences. And to realize that is to remember that we are not practicing for ourselves alone, that we are practicing for the benefit of all. This understanding of the natural and inherent interconnectedness of all beings, of all things. This is not something we make up. This is this is how things are. Things are interconnected. When we make this understanding the conscious motivation of our practice, it gives a tremendous energy to our endeavor. When we have as our conscious motivation, may my practice be for the welfare, for the happiness, for the benefit of all beings. And it can be very inspiring to begin each day or each sitting with that aspiration, sort of a declaration of bodhicitta. We're strengthening that motivation for what we're doing. May my practice be for the benefit of all. And at the end of a sitting, or the end of a day, an expression of bodhichitta can be in the form of a dedication of the merit of our practice. May the merit of my efforts, the merit of our practice, be dedicated to the awakening of all. As we do this, as we nurture this aspiration and strengthen it, It's as if this motivation of bodhichitta is itself a suffusion of love and compassion in our lives because it reinforces or strengthens that feeling of interconnectedness. That we're not simply sitting here doing this just for ourselves. So it puts our whole spiritual journey in a much larger context and connects us to everyone around us. The question which comes at this time is can we actually do this? Can we live in such a way? Can we practice in such a way that truly does benefit all beings? What's the transformation of consciousness that's necessary in order to accomplish this? One of the first insights of insight meditation, you may have been wondering when, when it was gonna come. Well, it already came and you may have missed it. So I thought tonight I would just tell you what the first insight is. And all of you without exception have experienced it. And that is the insight into how often and how frequently our mind wanders. <laughs> is there anybody who has not seen that yet? <laughs> it's very hard even to, to sit for one hour and not have that insight. Don't underestimate the value of seeing this because even though it's incredibly obvious, as soon as we start paying attention, it's not at all obvious to most people in this world because they haven't looked. If you go out to the, you know, somebody in the streets of Barry, does your mind wander? Mm, not really, you know, I'm pretty present, because generally people who have not really looked at their minds in this way don't know, have no idea. Not only that it wanders sometimes, <laughs> I mean it's mostly wandering. That's the experience that we have. The mind is so incredibly slippery. You know, we give it a very simple object of attention just to feel a breath. That's not complicated. You know, it's not some complex visualization of tantric deities. and It's just a simple in and out breath. <laughs> <laughs> and yet we're with a breath, you know, one breath, two breaths, three breaths if we're really on a roll and a thought slides in, and we get seduced by it and distracted by it. Thoughts come, memories come, plans come, and what's so striking is that very often it's not even pleasant. You know, it's not as if we're always at least distracted by pleasant reverie. I mean, sometimes it's like that, but sometimes it's reliving old hurts and arguments and, you know, bad feelings. And sometimes in English there are expressions which capture exactly the process, and I think there's one to describing this. It's as if we hop on a train of association, and it's just like hopping on the train and being carried someplace. We don't know when we've hopped on, and we have no idea where the destination is. So we don't know we've hopped on, we're on this train, it's going someplace. And then at a certain point, it's like we wake up, we get off the train, finding ourselves in a completely different mental environment, depending on what the particular thought pattern or thought train was. Now often find ourselves enmeshed in some emotional drama or some contraction of self, of I, of ego. And it all happens simply because we weren't aware of the thoughts coming. Now, we got seduced by them, we got distracted by them. In one teaching, the Buddha said very directly, he said, your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own unguarded thoughts. But once mastered, not even your mother or your father, or the people closest to you, can help you as much as the mind that is tamed. This is a very critical point and that's why this first insight is so important. We need to recognize, we have recognized, just this tendency of the mind, unguarded thoughts that carry us away again and again and again. It's not difficult to be mindful. It's difficult to remember to be mindful. And that's important because it's not that there's some daunting task, you know, that we have to develop some fantastic skill in order to be mindful. No, we just have to practice remembering. And in the moment of remembering, we're right back again. Because the nature of the mind is awareness itself. So from this first insight, of how frequently and how easily we get distracted, how frequently and easily we forget, comes the understanding of the value, the necessity, of training and steadying our awareness, stabilizing our awareness. Meditation practice is really not a hobby. It's not just. A, I mean, it is a nice thing to do, but it's essential because all the worlds we create in our personal lives and in the world at large have their origins in the mind, of thoughts in the mind. Just today, in one sitting, in one half hour, in one five-minute period how many different mind worlds were created innumerable over and over and over again so what is the nature of the training how do we learn how to steady the awareness stabilize ourselves in awareness how can we learn to stay awake The essence, the hard essence, of meditation, of what Sharon described last night as bhavana, this causing something to be developed, to bring forth. The essence of this training is a quality of mind called bare attention. And it's a, very, it's a very good phrase because the word bear in this phrase, it means simple. It means direct, it means non-interfering, non-judging. Not making stories about experience, but resting in the bare experience of what's happening. Bare attention. Attention means mindfulness, awareness, not forgetting. So bare attention is simple, direct, non-interfering, non-judging awareness. There's a haiku poem which expresses this very aptly. It's an old favorite of mine. It's written by uh, one of the Japanese Zen masters Basho. He wrote, The old pond, a frog jumps in plop. It's a wonderful expression of bear attention. The old pond a frog jumps in, plop. There's not some great description of this and that, it's just This is what happened. This quality of bear attention is very similar to the quality of listening where the mind is very receptive and also very alert. So just imagine yourself sitting you know, in your favorite chair listening to music you love, very relaxed. There's not straining, there's not struggling, you're really relaxed in the enjoyment of it. And you're simply letting the music wash through. Or maybe imagine yourself sitting listening to music that you have not yet heard. But with that same quality of receptivity, of relaxation, of alertness, of attentiveness. That's what the practice is. It's not looking for any particular experience to happen. When you're listening to music, do you sit there thinking, oh, I think there should be that note, or that note, or why is it No, it's just very easy, very simply sitting back, letting it all in. Can we listen to the experience of this mind and body in the same way, with simple, bare attention? There are a few specific tools, methodology of the practice that supports this kind of listening, that supports bare attention. I want to mention just a few of them. One tool of practice which people find very helpful is working with some primary object in the practice. Because if we sit down and from the beginning are just trying to be aware of everything, the mind can easily get distracted. But if we have a primary object, a primary focus, and it can be anything, it could be the awareness of the sitting posture. As we start on just feeling the sitting posture, And then, from that main focus, notice everything else that happens. Or the primary object could be sound, where we're resting in the awareness of sound and from that, we notice other things. Very commonly, the primary object is the breath, where we're sitting in our sitting posture, but giving primary attention to the feeling of the breath as it comes and goes. Working with the primary object strengthens and supports the quality of concentration, of attentiveness, of clarity. There's one very um, crucial aspect of understanding here, and that is we don't have to struggle to be aware. When the mind is undistracted, when we're simply here, the awareness of the breath happens naturally. We'll just do a, a simple experiment. I want to prove this to you. And just right now, if you could just very kind of slowly move your arm. And gently, gracefully, like you're dancing with your arm. And just feel the movement. Does anybody have a problem with that? I and mean, it's so simple, it's just, it's moving and feeling it. When we're undistracted, when we're not carried away, when we're not lost in some thought, the awareness is very natural, it's right there. It's the nature of the mind. The nature of the mind is awareness. So it's not something we have to create, it's not something we have to make or even to find. It's something to come back to every time we get lost. So we come back, to the awareness of whatever primary object we're using. And with that as a reference point, then notice the other things that are happening. This is one tool of practice. Another tool of practice, which helps strengthen and stabilize the quality of bear attention, is something that most people hate doing. And this is the tool of mental noting. Of actually putting a label on what's happening in, out, hearing. You know, and as we move on to other objects through the retreat, feeling different sensations or thoughts or emotions. But the purpose of the note is simply as a support for connecting with what's arising. And it's particularly useful when you find that the mind is wandering a lot. When you're lost in thought a lot, you find it hard to stay in the present. The note is a very helpful support for that. As I mentioned this morning, keep it very light. The note should be transparent. Pay attention to the tone of the note, because the tone of the note will often reveal a lot about the state of mind which may have previously been unnoticed. In, out, in, out, in, out. (laughs) That's saying something it's telling us, oh, I could relax a little bit here. Sometimes the noting gets very mechanical, and so it gives feedback in another way. You, know, you could be doing the walking meditation, noting in, out, in, out, in, out, <laughs> where the note is completely disconnected from what's happening. You know, it's just out of habit from the sitting. So seeing that, that actually is is pointing something out. It's a very useful feedback. Oh, the attention is not really connected here. Without the noting, we might have gone a long time before realizing that our minds were not really connecting. So play with the noting as a tool. When the mind is undistracted, when we really are connected, when we're present, then there's not such a strong need for it, and you could let it go for a while. But really see for yourself and work with it. Play with it so that you can use it when it's useful. So using a primary object as a support for bear attention. Using the mental noting at different times. Another tool of practice which is one of the most helpful is slowing down. Now, mostly in our lives, we're moving so quickly and rushing through things the great gift of a retreat is there's nothing to do and no place to go. That's just sitting, and the bell rings, and then you walk. Then you walk, and the bell rings, and then you sit. So you have all the time you need. There's absolutely no need to rush through anything. Enjoy it. Slowing down doesn't mean holding yourself back. It's not like you're reining in a horse, because that's just creating tension and struggle. Slowing down means settling back, just settling back into the body and let the movements come quite gracefully out of the present moment so that there's not a leaning forward, there's not a rushing. And you could use the feeling of rushing as a signal, as a feedback that you're not in your body. You're out ahead of yourself anticipating something, what needs to be done slowing down. It's almost like, I you know, at different times I've seen uh, different kinds of classical dance, and one time in particular I was, uh, saw some Japanese classical dance, and it was fantastic. The movements were so slow and so incredibly graceful and so full of presence I'm not suggesting that you necessarily be creeping along at super slow speed all the time. But as a general rule, the more you slow down, the more fully and completely you'll feel what is going on. I'd like to read something. It's a wonderful little anecdote about the power of careful seeing, careful looking, careful attention. And it's about the Swiss naturalist Louis Agassiz, who evidently was a great naturalist and a great teacher. And this little article describes how he would teach his students to see. It's a little long, but it's really good. He intended, he said, to teach students to see, to observe. And he intended to put the burden of study on them. And this is somebody, a student, describing the process. The initial interview was at an end. Agassi would ask the student when he would like to begin. If the answer was now, the student was immediately presented with a dead fish, usually a very long-dead, pickled, evil-smelling specimen, personally selected by the master from one of the wide-mouthed jars that lined his shelves. The fish was placed before the student in a tin pan. He was to look at the fish, the student was told, whereupon Agassiz would leave, not to return until later in the day, if at all. (laughs) Okay, So one of these students, and this is a man named Samuel Scudder, described the experience. In 10 minutes, I had seen all that could be seen in that fish. Half an hour passed, an hour, another hour. The fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around and looked it in the face, ghastly. From behind, beneath, above, sideways, at three-quarters view, just as ghastly. I was in despair. <laughs> I might not use a magnifying glass. Instruments of all kinds were prohibited: my two hands, my two eyes and the fish. It seemed a most limited it seemed a most limited field. I pushed my finger down the throat to feel how sharp the teeth were. I began to count the scales in the different rows until I was convinced that that was nonsense. At last, a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish, and now, with surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. When Agassiz returned and listened to Scudder recount what he had observed, his only comment was that the young man must look again. I was piqued. I was mortified, still more of that wretched fish But now I set myself to my task with a will and discovered one new thing after another. The afternoon passed quickly, and when toward the dawn, Agassiz inquired, did you see it yet? No, I replied, I am certain I do not, but I know how little I saw before. The day following, having thought of the fish through most of the night, Scudder had a brainstorm. The fish he announced to Agassiz had symmetrical sides with paired organs. Of course, of course, Agassiz said, obviously pleased. Scudder asked what he might do next, and Agassiz replied, oh, look at your fish. In Sutter's case, the lesson lasted a full three days. Look, look, look was the repeated injunction and the best lesson he ever had. A legacy of inestimable value, which he could not buy, with which he could not be parted. We are our own dead fish. And I think that on retreat, many of us go through a very similar process. <laughs> you know, at first, what is this? I've seen the breath. I know the breath. There's nothing more to learn here. But as we keep looking, as we keep refining our awareness, our attention, whole new worlds begin to open up for us. Often on retreat, as the mind gets quiet, as it gets simplified, as we learn to rest or abide and bear attention, things become magically alive in very wonderful ways. It's as if, to to use Huxley's phrase, the doors of perception get purified. You know, as our minds get quieter, we see and we hear and we feel and we sense things with such clarity, and there's such beauty. Sometimes the most simple things, you know, you just look at a branch against the sky, or kind of the curve of a snowdrift, or just things which normally in our business, busyness, we hurry right by, we don't see, we don't feel. In the silence, in the attentiveness, our perception gets tremendously pure. So slowing down is a way of beginning to really look, to see. As awareness becomes steadier and our concentration a little bit stronger, this quality of bare attention begins to reveal much deeper insights into the nature of who we are, the nature of the mind, the nature of the body. One of the things that happens is we begin to cut through our stories, stories about ourselves, stories about other people, stories about the world. We begin to see all of that as mental fabrication, our own mental concepts. And we live increasingly in the present moment. We have a very startling insight through the quality of bare attention, and that is we see with increasing clarity that our experience of the past and our experience of the future is nothing more than a thought in the present moment. This is a big one because we carry the burden of past and future around in our lives and it weighs us down tremendously but to see that our actual experience of past and future the way we ever experience it is just as a thought now. Thought is really light it's weightless. Saint Augustine had a wonderful line about this he said if the past and future really exist where are they? Notice the difference between being lost in a thought and being aware of a thought. This is a very important thing to see and to experience directly, not because somebody says it or because we've read it, but to actually be in the direct experience of the difference between being lost in a thought and being aware of a thought. And you have that opportunity many, many times in a day, in a sitting, in a walking. Because we're often lost for some period of time. And then in a certain moment, we remember, we awaken, pay attention to that moment. You now, what's so striking is that a common pattern of conditioning is that when we awaken from a thought, for many people, what immediately comes in is a judgment oh, there I go again. know, wandering, getting lost, distracted, instead of the much more skillful alternative of taking delight in the fact that one has awakened. Every time we're lost in a thought, at the very moment that we become aware of it, take delight in that and notice the difference in your experience. Because it's the difference between being asleep and being awake. So often people have the misunderstanding that meditation means not thinking, that we shouldn't have thoughts. And so then are in this incredible struggle with the seemingly endless procession of thoughts. The practice is not about not thinking. It's about being aware of the fact that we're thinking. This was expressed very clearly by one of the great Korean Zen masters, I think of the 10th or 11th century. He was one of the the main figures in Korean Zen. His name was Shinul. He said, don't be afraid of thoughts. Simply take care lest your awareness of them be tardy. So that's what we're practicing. It's not trying to prevent thought. Simply take care, lest our awareness of thoughts be tardy. You know, and you'll see that as you practice, in the beginning, maybe it is quite tardy. You know, we're gone for a minute or two or five or half an hour, and then at a certain point we awaken. But as the practice develops, as bare attention gets stronger, there are at least periods of time when just as the thought appears, we're right there, we know it. And there's this tremendous sense of really being awake. why is this so important? We seem to have gotten by in our lives, more or less, not paying much attention to being aware of our thoughts. It's so important because our lives and the unfolding of life in the world all has its origin in thought. And when we look in the world today and see so many places of suffering, of war and violence and injustice and all kinds of real pain for people. What is really going on? It's conditioning of the mind being acted out. It's thoughts and feelings of fear, of hatred, of greed. It's all of that conditioning being acted out because we're not aware of its arising. And what's important to recognize is that it's not only out there. The same things are happening in our own lives, maybe on a less dramatic scale at times. But you see, you see from one day of sitting here, or a week of sitting here, all of the habits, the patterns of our conditioning playing themselves out, when we're lost in them, when we're not aware, when we're not awake, then these conditions, these habits, get acted out in our lives. The practice of bare attention, the practice of awareness, lets us see what's happening in our minds, in our bodies, so that we can begin to make wise choices. We can begin to bring some discriminating wisdom. A thought arises, a desire arises, an intention arises. Is it skillful? Is it for the benefit of all beings? Or is this going to be the cause of suffering? If we see it, if we're awake, if we're aware, we can make that discrimination. If we're not aware, it's simply acting out all the patterns of our conditioning. This is a quotation from Thoreau, who in his own way expressed the wonderful value of retreat because his retreat was the woods at Walden Pond. He said, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could learn what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. That's what this is all about. You know, it's coming to a place where we can live deliberately, mindfully, with attentiveness, fronting only the essential facts of life, our direct experience, not living in all our stories, just to see what's what, to see what it has to teach. So this aspect of bare attention has to do with wakefulness, with waking up. Another aspect which is really a beautiful attribute of this quality is its universal aspect. And that means that bare attention or awareness has the capacity to be with everything, whether it's pleasant, whether it's unpleasant. There is nothing outside the sphere of awareness. There is no experience in this world which we cannot be aware of. So that's a remarkable quality, a quality of mind and heart that embraces, that includes everything. Sometimes it's likened to the quality of a mirror. A mirror doesn't selectively reflect some things and not reflect others. Its nature is to reflect whatever comes in front of it. The mind has a mirror-like wisdom. That is, it knows precisely and exactly and perfectly whatever arises when we're undistracted. One time When I was practicing in Burma, going through a period of incredible noise, they were doing construction, and I went to Upandita, our teacher, and I was reporting this, and his only comment was, did you note it? And I heard that, and I thought, well, he's just trying to make the best of a bad situation. Okay, there's this great distraction, did you note it? But as I went back and actually started noting it, I realized that there was something much more profound in his comment, which was that it absolutely does not matter what's arising. From the perspective of awareness, all experiences are equal. We get caught in our preferences. We like what's pleasant and we don't like what's unpleasant. And that's what creates the struggle in our lives. We need to decondition that and learn how to open to the whole range of experience. If you could remember this, it will make the next nine days so much easier. It doesn't matter what arises. Can you rest in the simple awareness, simple bare attention, just of recognition. There's this. There's this. There's this. There's a great Goldstein law of practice, which I discovered early on in my career. If it's not one thing, it's another. <laughs> <laughs> I think you will find that it's true. If it's not one thing, it's another. And it doesn't matter. So in talking about bare attention, just that simple quality of direct perception, direct connection with what's there, that quality of listening, of non-judging, not interfering, Of embracing it all, quality of wakefulness, waking up from the dream. We may hear this and resonate somewhat and think, yes, this is a good idea, but it also takes a certain effort to strengthen this quality. So, what is this quality of effort that we need to make on retreat? This is a very delicate matter because the word effort in English has many connotations which are problematic in terms of practice. Because often in English, when we use the word effort, we conjure up a notion of struggling with, or efforting, or striving, or expectation. And all of that is quite antithetical to what we're doing. It's not an effort of forcing. It's not an effort of struggle. It's much more a quality of courage. No, it's that quality of being present, the strength of presence, the courage, the willingness, you could think of it as a willingness of the heart to be with whatever's there. In a couple of nights, Guy is going to talk about the hindrances, one of which is sloth and torpor. And the usual meaning of that is or description is sleepiness, but it has a, another meaning as well. It means that quality of mind which retreats from difficulties. Now in everything, in our practice and in our life, we come against challenges, we come up against difficulties. This quality of effort, in Pali it's called virya. The real meaning of virya is not not the effort of struggle, it's the effort of courage that quality which does not retreat from difficult situations but is willing to be with it to be open to it, to explore it, to investigate it. And the sustaining energy for this courage for this kind of effort is interest. Can we be interested in what's happening? You know, it's so striking. We sit here and we feel the breath and after some amount of time, the mind starts to get bored. It's just another breath. You know, I've watched this breath ten zillion times already. If somebody were holding your head underwater, would your breath be boring? Probably not. It would become the most compelling thing in the world. Where is that breath? Well, it's quite something to realize that every breath we take is actually sustaining our life. Now, this is, this is not poetry, <laughs> although it is poetry, but every single breath we take is sustaining our lives. So and if we stopped breathing, we'd be dead. Oh, boring old breath. There's something we're not getting. And through the power of our attention, of just really being with it, we begin to feel what this this amazing process of breath is about that is sustaining our life. Something's going on. Can we feel it? Can we connect with that energy? We we take this quality of interest to really see. What is a thought? What is an emotion? Did you ever stop to consider what a thought is? And we're so often lost in our thoughts, lost in the stories. But what is it as a phenomenon? It's pretty mysterious. And what's so startling is that this phenomenon of thoughts, which has so much power in our lives when we're unaware of them, has so much power. We're slaves of the thought process thoughts come, do this, do that, and our whole life is just under the direction of the thought process, has so much power when we're unaware of them, and when we are aware of them, we see that there's nothing there. Really insubstantial, they're like phantoms. this This is worth seeing. Now what is the nature of the mind? What's the nature of consciousness? This mystery of awareness. When you look for awareness, you can't find anything. You can't point to it and say, yep, there's awareness. There's nothing to find. And yet there is this continuous, spontaneous process of knowing going on. Sounds are being known. The breath is being known. Movement is being known. Known by what? So often we overlook the profound mysteries what this life is about. So this time here, just like the rose time at Walden Pond, is to slow down, to settle into this quality of careful looking, careful feeling, of bare attention. You know the Dharma is vast. There is so much to explore and to understand and our practice is to open to it all and we do it slowly and we do it gradually and we do it systematically but it really is to be with it all and we do that, we practice that with that basic motivation of bodhichitta, may I do this, may I free myself for the benefit of all beings, for the happiness of all beings this is what we're doing here together. Let's sit for a few minutes. That you're sitting, open to the awareness of sounds as they appear, Notice how naturally and spontaneously the sounds are known. Connect with the feeling of each breath. How carefully can you feel each breath? May our practice be dedicated to the happiness, the welfare, the awakening of all beings.